Well, I don't know about you guys, but um, every time we every time we sing that particular song, man, my heart just gets stirred. It's like my mind just envisions myriads of people just in God's eternal kingdom, just singing together with one voice, all hail King Jesus. And it just moves my heart, and I'm so grateful to sing it with you today. I'm thankful for our worship team that leads us in worship week in and week out. It's a blessing. I want to invite you today, uh, if you have your Bible, to take it now and open it up to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, that's where we're going to be today. Today we're kicking off a new sermon series called Wonders of His Love. And uh, as we head into the Christmas season, um, my hope is that this series will really accomplish two goals, that it will help you remember and then rejoice in God's amazing love for you this Christmas, right? And so in this series, you know, each sermon is going to highlight an aspect or a part of God's love that is truly wonderful, right? That it's each week we're going to be preaching from select passages of scripture where I want to highlight some aspect of God's love that is unusual or truly astonishing when we pause our hearts and kind of still ourselves long enough to reflect on it and think on it. So let me just give you a little bit of a heads up on where we're going through the course of this series. Today I want to preach to you about God's inherent love. We're going to look at 1 John 4, and we're going to talk about how God is love. It's not just what he does, it's who he is. And so um, next Sunday, I want to be uh, preaching from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10, where we will be uncovering God's predetermined love. That if you are his, he loved you before there was a you, okay? Okay. the, week, the third week of this series, December 17th, we're going to talk about God's unbreakable love. Romans chapter 8, verse 35 through 39, that really talks about how nothing can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ. And then on Christmas Eve Sunday, um, I'm excited to, to preach to you that day just a very simple, straightforward, life-changing message from John 3.16 about how God gives us life-giving love, that he gave his life so that we can have life. And so that's where we're going in the sermon series. And as we work through the series, one of the things that our staff and volunteers of the church put together is this little Advent devotional guide for those of you who um, are, you know, in the habit or maybe you've never done this before of doing Advent devotionals. This is an Advent devotional guide that is based right off of our sermon series. It's designed for you to use each Sunday preceding Christmas, or maybe not Sundays, whatever day your family might do in Advent. Um, but each devotion has uh, a section in it that is kind of a devotional reading that were written by volunteer members of our own congregation, right? So this is our people sharing and opening up their hearts and their thoughts about the love of God. And then each uh, devotional has a recommended song that you can play on your device or your TV, sing together as a family, as well as some suggested family activities for you to do together. It's easy to use. It follows right along with the series. And you can download it as a PDF or put it on your device or whatever by just going to the homepage of our website or by just checking your email later today, there's gonna be an email sent out to the church that links to this and all of our socials will have it as well. So I hope that you'll consider using this Advent devotional guide as really like a primer throughout the week to just continue to make your heart prepared uh, to remember the love of Christ this Christmas. 
Today I want to begin the series by talking about God's inherent love. And we're going to see that the scriptures speak of love as being something not only that God does, but of course something that God is. And uh, if you grew up in church or if you're familiar with the scriptures, then you know the, the classic text that I'm talking about is 1 John chapter 4, where multiple times the author, John, writes and just directly and clearly states that God is love. I'm sure you've heard people say that, communicate that throughout your lifetime as I have. Uh, when I grew up as a kid in church, I remember being taught that God is love. Um, in my Sunday school classes, I remember my parents teaching me that God is love. Uh, you know, I remember those who led our children's ministry, they would sing this song about how God is love. Anybody remember the good old song, Beloved, let us love one another. Anybody remember this? Please don't, okay. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God. He that knoweth, loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. Beloved, let us love one another, First John 4, 7 and 8. Okay, <laughs> how about that? I'll be here all week, okay? You guys, you know, just check it out. All right. <laughs> Praise the Lord that Phil Wing leads the music here, right? So let's just go good. Um, now, I've been taught all that uh, since I was a child, right? And maybe, maybe you have too. Um, the problem is that... Uh, we can tend to think, like when we hear this statement that God is love, we can tend to think of that as being kind of a childish topic or a not too deep topic. Maybe we feel it's a little bit elementary or too simple for us. But I just have to say, like, as foundational as a doctrine this, this, this is, that God is love, this has been so refreshing to my heart to study over these past few days. I am so grateful to be able to open this portion of God's Word. I hope that this is a refreshing sermon and a refreshing series for your heart as well, because sometimes we need to be reminded that God really does love his people. I was thinking after the first service that the, uh, the tendency of our heart is to want to come to church, listen to a teaching, and we tend to be positive about that teaching if we say, wow, I really learned something new, or I heard something profound that I had never heard before. But so much of the scripture's teaching is not really learning anything new. And it's about being stirred up, like Peter says. I want to stir you up by way of reminder. Right? And so that's kind of what I want to do here in this sermon series, is, is stir you up by way of reminder that God loves you. I, I, I was thinking earlier this week about Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul writes to the Philippian church, and he says, um, I want to write the same things to you, and it is no trouble for me, and it is safe for you. Right? So we come to church, we want to hear new things often. When Paul writes and says, I'm going to tell you the same things, and it's, it's not a problem for me to do that, but it's also safe for you to remember some of these same things. And so today, uh, I want to just ask you to take a posture of heart where you're saying, Lord, I, I don't need new things. I need to rejoice in the same thing that I've heard since my childhood, that you love a sinner like me. I hope that you sense that that is safe for, for you, and it will be good for me to proclaim it to you. So I'm going to preach from 1 John 4 about God's inherent love, that he is love. Here's how I want to work through this sermon today. I'm going to read our text out loud in just a minute. And then after that, 
I want to work through this message in three parts. I want to talk to you about what God is love doesn't mean. Then I want to talk to you about what God is love does mean. And then the third section, I want to say how God is love has been shown to the world. And then what we're going to do to wrap up this sermon today and all the sermons in this series is I'm going to invite you at the end to just stand with me eventually and do this congregational reading, a responsive reading of Scripture where we reflect on a particular passage of Scripture that reminds us of God's love. So let me read our text fully uh, for today. This is 1 John 4, verses 7 through 10. God's Word reads this way. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Thanks be to God for his good and perfect word. Let's talk about God's inherent love. John's claim in verse 8 right here and later on in verse 16 that God is love. First section of the sermon, let's first start out with some clarifiers. What God is love doesn't mean, all right? I want to share two things with you about what it doesn't mean. The first one is this. It doesn't mean that God is equal to love. I don't, don't envision that with an equal sign. God equals love. Don't think of it that way, right? If God was equal to love, then we would be able to reverse those two words and say it this way, that love is God. And if we started to think that love is God, then we would be off track, although there are many people in our world today who certainly feel that way. They say that God is love, therefore love is God. I remember uh, years and years ago, I was on a... Um, an airplane, and I was sitting down in my seat in the airplane, and a lady came and sat down next to me. I got my Bible out. I started to read, just kind of hoping it might open a door for conversation, which it did in that case, and she looked at me, and she's like, what are you reading in Scripture? And we started having this conversation, um, and very quickly into that conversation, when I started to ask her what her beliefs were, then she started to say, well, I believe that God is love, and, and then she went on this whole rant about how, like, God is uh, just this uh, that love is this power in the universe and that love holds the universe together. And, you know, it's just kind of like in her mind, love was this supreme force that kind of just ruled all. And she just, you know, I was like, Man, this, I don't know where she's getting this, these ideas from. Although there are plenty of people in our culture who feel that way. The problem with feeling that way is that she ends up worshiping love, but not worshiping God. And here's the truth that we need to understand from Scripture. We do worship God who is love, but we do not worship love as our God. I want to repeat that again. We do worship God who is love, but we do not worship love as our God. God is love doesn't mean that God is equal to love. That's the first thing it doesn't mean. Second thing it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that God is only love. So if, 
God is love meant that God were only love, then we would have to dismiss several other scriptures that also say God is this or God is that. John chapter 1 verse 5 says that God is light. John chapter 4 verse 24 says that God is spirit. John chapter 1 through 15, Jesus says, I am several things. I am bread and light and door and shepherd and resurrection and way and truth and life and vine. Right? Jesus says, I am those things. You keep reading on into the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 29 actually says that God is a consuming fire. A lot of people are happy to say that God is love. Not so many people are like, God is a consuming fire, right? But if we're going to be consistent about who God is, then we have to teach that the scripture is also saying that God is a consuming fire. He is a jealous God in perfect holiness and perfect righteous good wrath. He will ultimately destroy sin because he will not share his glory with another idol. So God is not only love. Some people certainly believe that way. They will say things like, there are attributes that God has, but there's only one thing that he is, and they'll say that he is love. And what they mean is that God possesses mercy and justice, and he possesses wrath, and he possesses omniscience and omnipotence and immutability and all these other words, but they will say that only love is his essence. So they, they wish, their intention is to minimize God's other attributes while maximizing only the attribute of his love. And really, usually what you have here is people who um, are not interested or perhaps have never participated in really deeply studying God's word and digging into the theology of God and his attributes. Instead, they just really what they want to do is they just, they, they want to avoid anything uh, hard or difficult or, you know, they'll, they'll probably say their favorite verse is God is love and that their second favorite verse is, you know, judge not lest you be judged, right? Because they don't really want to acknowledge the holiness and the justice, the wrath of God, all part of his attributes, and here's what I want you to understand. If we do that or when other people do that, you have simply made an imaginary God of your preference. You have started to try to make God into your image. And you're creating for yourself nothing more than a false God. The truth is, if we want to remember the true God, the one true God, then we must remember that God is wholly full of every one of his attributes all at the same time. Right? That he is, he's not a God that's kind of made up of a hundred parts and he's maybe like three parts holiness and one part wrath and five parts love and, you know, three parts immutability. It, it, that's not, God is not made up of parts of varying sizes of his attributes, right? He is fully loving and fully just. He is fully powerful and fully merciful. He is fully holy and fully gracious. And he is full of all those things all at the same time. None of them ever conflict with one another. His love is fully compatible with his justice and his mercy is 
fully compatible with his wrath. All of these things work together all the time in their fullness. God is not only love. And God is not equal to love. That's what God is love does not mean. I hope it helps with some clarifiers. So, of course, it begs the question, well, what does it mean? So, so let's talk about it. What God is love does mean. Well, we can't really know what John means when he says that God is love unless we remember the big context of what he's writing about in the book of 1 John. John t- gives us the explicit purpose of this letter in our Bible called 1 John. He says, I'm writing these things so that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may know that you know God. And so John repeatedly says, I'm writing this letter so that you can have this assurance that you are indeed God's. And one of the things that he says about having this assurance is that you can be assured that you are God's when his love is flowing out of your heart into other brothers and sisters in Christ and into other people. And so there's this call all through the book of John for Christians to love one another. That's kind of the the main kind of consistent action call throughout the book of 1 John that Christians are to love one another. Well, then we have to ask the question, well, what kind of love does that mean? Because the Bible talks about all different kinds of love. The Bible talks about uh, romantic, sexual, uh, erotic type love. Okay? That's the Greek word eros that we see in the scripture. Sometimes that's the scripture reference to love. Sometimes when the Bible talks about love, it talks about phileo love, which is like a friendship type of love, a brother to brother, friend to friend type love. And then there's the storge love of, um, that people can have for one another, where it's more of like a family unit type love. But the word that's used for love here is the word agape. All through the book of 1 John, John uses the word agape, and agape love is God's type of love. So John is calling believers all throughout this letter to give God's type of love to one another. So in verse 7, he says very clearly, Beloved, let us agape one another. Let us love one another. Why? He says, for love is from God. So he's saying that agape love has its origin in God himself. It doesn't have its origin in human beings. There's nothing that you and I in and of ourselves can do to just muster up agape God type of love from within ourselves. It's got to come from God himself. It's it's not just a natural thing. It's a supernatural thing that comes to us from God. So if you want to give that kind of agape love, then you've got to get it from God. And that's why John says in verse 7, whoever loves or agapes knows God and has been born of God and knows God. If you want to have agape love, you've got to have been born of God. Not everybody in this life is is born being of God. You're not born into God's family. You are born separated from God. You are born into sin that separates you from from the Lord. And so that's why the scripture talks about us uh, having a need to be born again, to be regenerated, to be given new life. It's why when you are not saved, Christians will say those who are not believers are unregenerate. They're not yet re-made alive, okay? Uh, 
we, if we want God's love within us, it doesn't just come naturally. The unbelieving world cannot show agape to one another. Only true believers can have it and show it because it comes from God. So if you want to give agape, you've got to get agape and you can only get it from God. So those who are not born of God can't have this type of love, but those who are born of God will have this kind of love. That's why John says in verse 8, the very next verse, anyone who does not love agape does not know God, for God is love. So John tells us that agape love is from God. He's the source. And now he goes deeper and he says, because God is love. So how can we understand this? Maybe, a, maybe an illustration will help. Um, imagine, imagine, you know, if you're trying to figure out how, how could we say that God is something and that it's from him at the same time. Think about it like this. Imagine in my backyard if I had a fountain and anyone who drank from the water of that fountain could be cured of terminal cancer. It was a special cancer-curing water that came out of that fountain. It couldn't be received anywhere else. It had to come from that fountain. So if you had that cancer, you know, if you had cancer, you might say life is from the fountain. The fountain is the source of cancer-free life for you. So likewise, you might rightly say the fountain is life. That doesn't mean that the fountain is equal to life. It doesn't mean that the fountain is only life. It means that the fountain is the source of life for you. And that's what John is saying about God, that God is the only source for Agape, God type of love. If you want God type of love, you've got to get it from God. You can't get it or give it apart from him. That is what God is love does mean. So now let's hit the last part of this message and talk about how God is love is shown to the world. Because as we read our text, what we're going to see is that this agape love, God's love, it's not by its nature, something to get and keep. God's love is not a selfish love. God's love is something that is to be given. It's to be expressed. It's to be poured out. It's a generous, sacrificial type of love. And that's why John continues telling his readers how God has given his agape to the world. Let's see it in verse 9 and 10. Verse 9 and 10 says this, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Lots of great concepts that I could preach a whole sermon series on just right there. I just want to highlight a couple things for you. First of all, How did God manifest or reveal or show his love to us? Verse 9 says that he showed it to us, right? And here's how. It's not by him saying, hey, I'm going to show you a concept called love. Uh, It's not by him giving an emotional feeling um, that gives you an experience of love. Rather, God, he does it by giving to us a person. The person of Jesus Christ, his son. God's love is shown to you 
in the giving and the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. And why? Why did God do this? So that in him you can have life. Like everybody in this, like everybody in this room probably would say, yeah, I'd like to have life. Not trying to die. Right? It's why we try to stay alive. It's why we eat. It's why we drink. It's why we take medicine. It's why we'll have surgeries. It's why we exercise. It's why we do lots of things because we want to have life. And even more than just wanting physical life here and now, like we all know that death is coming. And so we, deep within each of our hearts, we all really will want this eternal life. And all through the book of 1 John, John has been writing and saying that there is such a thing as eternal life and you can have it through Jesus whom God sent for you. Why did Jesus come? So that through him you can have life. And when Jesus came, what does verse tell us? Verse 10 tell us. When Jesus came, he became something for us that gives us life. He became, what verse 10 says, the propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation is a big word. Uh, one time my brother was having a conversation with a guy in our church, and the man used a big word, and my brother said to him, uh, hey, sir, that's a $10 word, and I'm a $2 guy, right? So, you know, this is a $10 word, but here's, here's the thing. Man, these, these $10 words like propitiation, they're there because they're rich in meaning. Um, let me break it down on a simple level for you. Here's what propitiation means. Propitiation, if I could summarize it succinctly, is a sacrifice that satisfies. Propitiation is a sacrifice that satisfies. It is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross that satisfied God's righteous wrath against our sin, right? So God has wrath against sin, righteous wrath. God's not sinning when he has wrath against sin. It's part of his holiness and his goodness all working together with his love that he is what? He is uh, rightly experiencing a holy anger against sin that must be punished. There must be uh, something that is satisfied in him because none of us want to end our life and stand in judgment before a God whose wrath has not been satisfied concerning our sin. If his wrath has not been satisfied, then we're going to suffer judgment and hell and condemnation. But God sent Jesus to be the propitiation, the sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath um, against our sin. Propitiation is what we sing about when we sing lyrics in some of our favorite songs, lyrics that say things like, till on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Why? For every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ I live. That song should be titled Propitiation, right? And that's, at least that line should be. <laughs> because that is, a, that is a lyric of propitiation. It's the sacrifice that satisfied. I want you to know this this morning. Like, when God forgives your sins, they're not forgiven because God just kind of had a good day in heaven and he thought to himself, you know, today I'm, I'm just going to let his sins or her sins go and I'm just not going to think about them anymore and I'll just kind of ignore them for now and just set them aside. And it's not like your sins are just still kind of hanging out there somewhere 
that on the next day when you really do something bad and mess up, that God can kind of go back into his memory and just pull him back out again and be like, ugh, now I'm angry at you again, right? No, the truth is, here's the truth. God is not ignoring your sins. God has fully seen every single one of our despicable sins. He has fully seen them. And they are a massive affront to him and his holiness and his righteousness. Therefore, they must be punished. They are like, they create for us something like a debt that we owe to God that must be paid. In other words, he must be satisfied. But here's the good news of the gospel. Instead of punishing us or making us pay for our sins, God sent Jesus Christ to be punished on our behalf and to pay the debt of sin that we owe. God sent Jesus to be the propitiation for your sins. That is the good news of the gospel. He's the sacrifice that satisfies God. Now, in the old days, um, you know, here, I'll just say this. I said this in the first service. When I was first in ministry, I think I was kind of enamored with kind of young, up-and-coming preachers that were cool and novel and trendy and kind of cutting edge. The older I get, the more I like the old guys. In fact, the, the older I get, the more I like the old dead guys, okay? Because they stayed faithful all the way to the end, you know, and just served the Lord till their last breath. But <clears throat> some of the old dead guys used to have different ways of talking about God's love. And one of the ways that used to be talked about God's love back in the, the old days was that people would talk about his complacent love, which is a really kind of a weird term, isn't it? God's complacent love. Because when we hear that, we probably think of something negative. Like we might associate complacency with disinterest or laziness or somebody not being motivated too much. But in the old days, they understood God's complacent love as being something truly wonderful. It was, it was, a, it was a way for them to say that God's love is totally at rest. It is completely delighted. It is fully contented and fully satisfied. Now, I don't know if you have ever really thought about God's love that way. I don't know if you've ever really thought about God being fully satisfied in his love for you. Because I think many of us, we think, well, when I'm doing really, right, do really well in my Christian life, then God's loving me more and experiences love a little more. But when I'm, when I'm not doing so well, maybe his love for me is kind of diminishing. And I think that's kind of a normal way for us to think about God's love in our flesh. But wouldn't it be great news for us to know that God's love for us is always fully satisfied? That nothing we do can ever make him love us any less or any more than he does right now. Wouldn't that be great news? Here's the thing. It is good news. It is wonderful news. It is true news. Because God sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. That means that he is, his wrath has been fully satisfied and his love has been fully extended to us. Here's the good news. This is truth. Like God doesn't have a fully satisfied love for you because of you. God has a fully satisfied love for you because of Jesus. So when you see that your works fall short, remember Jesus, you know, God is pleased with Jesus' works. When you realize that your, 
righteousness is lacking. Remember, God is delighted in Jesus' righteousness. When you think more sacrifice is going to earn God's favor, remember, God is totally content in Jesus' sacrifice. And when you wonder if God's love for you might ebb and flow or increase or decrease, then remember, God has a fully satisfied love for his son. And if you've been joined to his son in faith, then God's love for his son extends to you. That is the wonder of God's love. That he loves you with the same love he gives to his son. Nothing less. Full love for you because of Jesus. I mean, ask yourself. If you, you know, just take a few moments this week and just think to yourself, how much does God the Father love his son? Try to answer it. Try to put words on it. Like, in what ways does God love his son? And, and reflect on it. And when you do, then reflect on this truth. He has that same love for you. So listen, church family, those of you who are believers, if you have the complacent love of God, the completely pleased love of God, the, the fully satisfied love of God, the absolutely contented love of God, if you have that because you have Christ, then you have something that is truly wonderful. Oh, the wonders of his love. That the God who is love loves you. I want to close today by leading us in a congregational, responsive reading that I want us to look at like a prayer. Again, we're going to close every sermon in this series with a responsive reading like this. And for today, I want us to focus on Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. It's going to be on the screen behind me in just a moment, but in this passage, the Apostle Paul is expressing his pastoral heart for the church to know God's love in a type of knowledge that surpasses knowledge. And so he prays for God to reveal that love for him. And so we've adapted Paul's personal prayer to make it our collective congregational prayer today. So when we put these verses on the screen in just a moment, um, when you see the underlined parts on the screen, that's what I want you to read right out loud with me. Maybe some of you have never done this before. You've never been in church that's done uh, responsive reading. But when you see the underlined parts, I want you to read those right out loud, and I will read the parts that are not underlined. And we'll do this together. So let me ask you to stand. You can stand with me right now. As we congregationally pray from our hearts that God would reveal his love toward us. So you read the underlined portions aloud with me. Verse 14. For this reason we bow our knees before God, Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant us to be strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith that we being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth 
and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. So Lord, we make that our prayer today. That we, being rooted and grounded in your love, Lord, you are the fountain of love, the the source of God type of love, that it's coming from you, Lord. So with you being there, we want you overflowing in our hearts through your Son. Lord, give us your strength so that we can comprehend what all the saints, what you want all the saints to comprehend, that breadth and height and length and depth of your love, Lord, immeasurable love that you have for us. We praise you, Lord. And I want to pray specifically this morning for the person who may be in this room right now and they wrestle in various seasons of life wondering whether you love them more or love them less or if you loved them yesterday, you stopped loving them today and they're, they, they can waver. Lord, I pray that today would be a turning point, a freeing point for them that they would know that they have your perfectly satisfied love in Christ. And that they would wrestle no more with that. And Lord, I also pray for the person who may be in this room today who has not yet been born of you. Therefore, because they're not alive in you, they don't have your love in them or flowing through them. And so Lord, today, please do your miraculous work of bringing somebody from death to life. bringing them to faith in Jesus Christ who became the propitiation for their sins. I pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.